This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by alligators. Do you wish you could enjoy the prehistoric era without the risk of getting eaten by a raptor? Try alligators today. Welcome to episode 121 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we'll be talking about cars, a word that simultaneously refers to a four-wheeled motor vehicle, a compartment of an elevator, and a movie that has just enough kachows to distract us from the fact that it's a post-apocalyptic horror film. Seriously, a world of anthropomorphic cars living happily without any humans? Did the cars rise up? Did they stage a coup? Did they say I am speed so many times that the entire human race got fed up and jumped off a cliff? I mean, it's as if the Pixar team binge-watched Terminator and thought, yep, that's perfect for a kid's movie. But let's have a car on the highway with a mattress strapped to the roof, even though there are no humans in this world because apparently people don't exist, but mattresses still do. Specifically, we'll be talking about electric cars. As our electric grid becomes less and less carbon-intensive, electric vehicles offer an opportunity to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They also eliminate the air pollution from tailpipes and are already cheaper to operate than gasoline-powered vehicles. With those promises, it's no wonder so many places have seemed extremely eager to adopt this new technology. All right, Justin, a historic environmental decision in the state of California today. Um, air quality officials voting a short time ago to require all new cars sold in the state to be zero emission vehicles by 2035, just about 13 years from now. It's a really significant move. California is the largest auto market in the U.S. Gas vehicle emissions are the biggest source of carbon dioxide in California and make up about 40 percent of the state's greenhouse gas emissions. Gasoline-powered vehicles make up 40% of California's greenhouse gas emissions, with the other 60% coming from Northwest's spectacular fart on the Kardashians two weeks ago. Seriously, they live an hour away from me, and even I heard that thing. And that's a compliment. That clip was from NBC News nine months ago, and it shows not just that California is enthusiastic about electric vehicles, but people across the country want to know about it. The California auto market is so big that automakers can't afford to not sell in California. And while they already had plans to transition to electric vehicles anyway, California's law essentially forces them to stick to that plan. Furthermore, New York had a similar law on the books. Massachusetts, Virginia, and Washington had trigger laws in place to follow California's lead. And Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Minnesota, New Jersey, New Mexico, Nevada, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington, D.C. had other clean air policies tied to California, which gave news viewers in those states incentive to keep an eye on California, too. This all followed the federal government instituting a $7,500 tax credit for consumers who purchase electric vehicles, which of course they passed a month after I bought a gasoline-powered vehicle because the EV was about $7,499 too expensive. All of this begs the question, are we ready to barrel toward an electric vehicle utopia? Are we speed? No, only Lightning McQueen can be speed. And your friend that still Naruto runs through hotel hallways. But it's an important question. Electric vehicles are cool, but they have a number of challenges. From the manufacturing process, to the electricity they'll require, to the fact that every single EV skeptic seems to have plans to take a 500-mile road trip through rural North Dakota next week and might not have access to a charger. So today... We'll discuss what the potential could be for electric vehicles, what real hurdles stand in their way, and what needs to happen to ensure our clean transportation transition doesn't turn into a mess and actually ends up helping people. 
The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for Electric Vehicles 101. Electric vehicles are cars that, to some degree, use an electric motor to move. There are three main types— battery electric vehicles, hybrid electric vehicles, and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Battery EVs are cars that rely entirely on electricity to get around. They have a battery which you can charge up, much like your phone or your electric toothbrush, except instead of giving your teeth a harrowing mosh pit or allowing you to argue with strangers on the internet, the EV battery powers a motor which then propels the car. Hybrids are sort of a middle ground option between battery EVs and gasoline-powered vehicles. They do have a battery and an electric motor, but they also have a traditional fuel engine that you need to fill with gas. The gasoline powers the car when it's actually driving, but whenever the car is braking, it captures the heat energy that is lost and charges the battery, something called regenerative braking, which I'll explain more in a moment. The battery can then power the car when it's stopped, and depending on the model, might be able to power slower travel over shorter distances. Lastly, plug-in hybrids sort of split the difference between a battery EV and a regular hybrid. They also have a battery and electric motor and a fuel engine, but unlike regular hybrids, you can charge their batteries from an external source. This means they can run exclusively on electricity, and the gasoline is really less of a primary power source and more of a use if you run out of battery and don't want to call AAA. So why do EVs have all this hype? Beyond the fact that Teslas have retractable door handles that look super fancy, but whenever I try to get into one, I spend 10 minutes clawing at the door wondering what I'm supposed to do. Actually, I looked it up. The retractable door handles reduce drag and make the vehicle more efficient, so I guess that is a legitimate reason to be excited. But there's more. While the sticker price for EVs is currently higher, there is a real benefit to not having to pay for gas. The average driver saves about $700 in fuel costs per year while driving electric vehicles, and arguably more if you consider the number of times you go inside the little gas station store for some sugar-free Red Bull and day-old taquitos. Battery EV drivers also cut their vehicle maintenance costs by about 40%, because unlike gasoline vehicle drivers, they don't need to deal with the engine oil, timing belt, oxygen sensors, spark plugs, and all that other stuff you pretend you understand when your mechanic is talking to you. Hybrid drivers do have those things, but they save money on brake maintenance, so they get a little something too. Speaking of brakes... EVs are a lot more energy efficient, in large part due to that regenerative braking I mentioned earlier. If you remember back to high school physics, okay, that was a good one, no one remembers that, but if you remember anything, it's probably the egg drop, the time you pushed two repelling magnets together and felt like the Hulk, and the famous laws of thermodynamics. The first of those laws is that energy cannot be created or destroyed, merely transformed. I personally disagree with that. Sure, in the morning, energy moves seamlessly between my coffee and my brain, but by afternoon, that energy's just gone, and I don't know where it went. What do you have to say to that, Rudolph Clausius? But okay, when a car starts moving, it's transforming energy. It takes potential energy from the gas tank or the battery and turns it into kinetic energy or energy of motion that propels the car. But when a car breaks, all that kinetic energy has to go somewhere. It can't just disappear. It's not Cameron Diaz. With a gasoline-powered car, that energy gets turned into heat. 
That's why brake pads get so hot after heavy use. But with an electric vehicle, that energy instead charges the battery. Instead of the motor turning the wheels, the wheels turn the motor. And honestly, it was about time that the wheels start reciprocating. I know, the motor loves to sim. But that was a completely one-sided relationship for decades. Hopefully the wheels start buying the motor flowers once in a while, too. What that means, though, is one, you save on maintenance costs because your brake pads don't heat up, and two, the vehicle is a lot more energy efficient. Combine that with the fact that EVs convert significantly more of their potential energy into kinetic energy than a gasoline-powered vehicle does, and it results in EVs being way more efficient. Battery EVs or plug-in hybrids in electric mode can exceed the equivalent of 130 miles per gallon. For comparison, the average U.S. car gets 25 miles per gallon, and even that was a significant improvement from 15 years or so ago. I'm pretty sure I've seen old Jeeps that take a gallon of gas just to get up a hilly driveway. And beyond cheaper fuel, cheaper maintenance, and way more energy efficiency, electric vehicles are a lot better for the climate. Our expert this week is Dr. Al Avestruz, Assistant Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Michigan. According to Dr. Avestruz, the biggest impact EVs could have is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So electric vehicles, actually, the biggest impact is in reducing greenhouse gases. So um, if you look, uh, you know, the amount of greenhouse gases from electric, from normal vehicles, internal combustion engine, it accounts for something like around 15% of the greenhouse gases that are produced today. It's true. Even with today's electric grid, using the nationwide average of different energy sources, the U.S. Department of Energy found that battery EVs create the equivalent of 3,932 pounds of carbon emissions per year, plug-in hybrids create 5,772 pounds, regular hybrids create 6,258 pounds, and gasoline vehicles create 11,435 pounds. And that's just today. Our electric grid is becoming cleaner and cleaner, and if someday our grid becomes entirely clean energy battery-powered EVs could drive with essentially zero carbon emissions. That's great for the climate, but it's also great for other stuff. It's great for preventing situations where a drop of gasoline gets on your arm and you think you're about to spontaneously ignite and die for about 10 minutes. Just me? That isn't a universal fear? The United States also imports 7.86 million barrels of gasoline per day from other countries, and while we do export more than that, and it's not a bad thing to have trade partners, it's not like Catan where you give someone an ore and they build a city and beat you immediately, there is an argument that domestic clean energy presents a national security or energy independence benefit. There's also a health benefit. The tailpipes of gasoline-powered vehicles also emit nitrogen oxides, which react with sunlight and other chemicals to form ground-level ozone, which inflames lungs, leads to chest pains and coughing, and causes 1 million premature deaths every year, according to the UN Environment Program. They also emit particulate matter, which causes skin and eye irritation, respiratory issues, and contributed 8.7 million premature deaths in 2018. They also emit carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, benzene, formaldehyde, and a whole lot more. But electric vehicles have none of that. And like the dad joke your dad told at Father's Day dinner, we're already seeing positive feedback. A 2023 Science of the Total Environment study found in California, every 20 zero-emissions vehicles per 1,000 people in a given zip code led to a 3.2% drop in the rate of emergency room visits due to asthma. If you ask me, that's pretty breathtaking. And that's just air pollution. Noise pollution is another big issue. A 2019 report from French nonprofit Brut Parif found residents of Paris and its suburbs lose an average of more than three healthy life years each due to sonic disturbances caused primarily by cars. Like every Starship song, 
Constant intrusive car noise actually triggers our fight-or-flight response, which leads to a surge of stress hormones in our bodies, raises blood pressure, accelerates heart rates, weakens vascular and digestive systems, causes migraines and headaches, and has been linked to longer-term issues like hearing loss, anxiety, depression, and changes in sleep patterns. And that's Europe! Only 65.5% of Europeans are routinely exposed to traffic noises above 50 decibels, as compared to 97% of Americans. I mean, the only things Americans are that much more exposed to than Europeans are reruns of Friends, getting hit by rogue baseballs, and having to choose between 50 types of breakfast cereals. Seriously, Kit Kats have a cereal now. What's next? Just infusing pure lard with sugar and xanthan gum and then putting Peppa Pig on the box? We have to draw the line somewhere. EVs make some noise, but a lot less than gasoline-powered vehicles. And actually, it could be lower if it weren't for legislation that requires that EVs actually add noise to help keep pedestrians safe. Because apparently people will walk into the street blindfolded if they don't hear vroom vroom. And if I can add one more thing on health... There was a paper in Urban Studies earlier this year that analyzed these health issues in Los Angeles in the context of class and race. The authors found whiter, more affluent neighborhoods in Los Angeles were driving their cars more, but were exposed to less particulate matter pollution. And on the flip side, lower-income Black and Latino neighborhoods were driving less, but were exposed to more particulate matter pollution. In large part, that's due to the fact that historically, the whiter, more affluent communities had the political power to keep highways out of their backyard, leading highways like the 10, 110, and 105 to cut through these predominantly minority communities. And that's not just LA. All over the country, highway projects going back decades have targeted Black and Latino communities and led to devastating economic and health effects. I guess that's one thing cars did get right. Now, electric vehicles don't fix that issue by any means, but they can act as a little bit of a band-aid by reducing noise and air pollution on the highways that cut through these disenfranchised communities. All of that, from climate to health to justice to national security to making cars cheaper and more efficient, is pretty cool. I mean, it's almost as cool as Disney Dorable's Squish-A-Lots. And no, Disney didn't pay me to say that. I did just give a presentation at Disney on Wednesday, but that's completely beside the point. Squish-a-lots are genuinely the coolest. But before we hype electric vehicles too much, we should probably pump the brakes. I promise, this is the last time I'm in charge of jokes for a couple months. Please don't leave. Despite all these exciting things about electric vehicles there is still a lot of room to improve. And in fact, they need to improve if they're going to take over the world the way so many states and countries are literally mandating that they do. No pressure, Elon. No pressure. Let's start with batteries. Electric vehicle batteries require a number of metals to create. These metals are finite, non-renewable resources, like unopened packets of pop rocks from the 90s, or the amount of patience I have on a customer support call with Spectrum. And while different companies may use different concoctions of these metals, many of the metals bring a variety of issues during the mining and smelting process. I tend to see these mining issues discussed in very general terms, and I'd prefer to do a little better than that for you all, so I'm going to take five of the most common battery metals and give you a quick overview of the issues facing each of them. I'll say in advance, all of these issues are solvable. Metal mining can be done sustainably. But it's not right now. And with that, let's dive in and literally put the pedal to the metal. And you're not allowed to get mad at that one. That was objectively good. Aluminum. As a light metal, aluminum, or aluminium as the people who lost the Revolutionary War call it, is essential for reducing the weight of EVs, among other things, but EVs aren't hitting their goal weight in the healthiest way. It's like doing the Atkins diet. 
Aluminum comes from a reddish rock called bauxite, and bauxite mining, largely carried out in Australia, China, and Guinea, involves open pit methods that strip away all native vegetation, disrupt local wildlife habitats, promote soil erosion, and leave behind toxic red sludge that can contaminate surrounding water. In Guinea, the world's most abundant source of bauxite, Locals report that mining companies have taken hundreds of square miles of previously used land for farming without adequate compensation. And that's just the mining. Turning bauxite into actual aluminum requires a massive amount of energy and water as well, leading to the release of several harmful greenhouse gases and air pollutants. Nickel Nickel helps improve the energy density and storage capacity of EV batteries, so Using it makes a decent amount of sense. Five cents, specifically. But nickel extraction, predominantly carried out in Indonesia, leads to water pollution, acid mine drainage, acid rain causing sulfur dioxide emissions, and the destruction of the incredibly biodiverse rainforests in Indonesia and New Caledonia. In 2017, the Philippines actually closed or suspended 17 nickel mines due to environmental concerns. Nickel also comes from ores that are actually only 1-2% to nickel, meaning it takes a lot of energy to actually get pure nickel out of them. It's like trying to get pure tuna out of a Subway tuna sandwich. Manganese By decreasing the combustibility of EV batteries among other things, manganese is really important, but while it may make batteries safer, the same can't be said for humans exposed to it. It's like the girlfriend who is the mom of the friend group, but then complains about all of them to you. Manganese poisoning has been linked to impaired motor skills, cognitive disorders, and metabolic processes in adults, and impaired growth in rickets-like skeletal deformities in children. South Africa is home to one-third of the world's manganese mines, and these mines have polluted surrounding air, water, and food with the metal. Ukraine also has the fourth largest global manganese reserves, and one such basin has been continually bombarded by Russia in their invasion. Cobalt Cobalt can both handle a lot of electricity, and it's really heat-resistant, preventing batteries from heating up. But in case you didn't notice there was a pattern by now, cobalt mining has some issues. 70% of the world's cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and toxic dumping in DRC has devastated landscapes, polluted water, led to the deaths of crops and worms vital for soil fertility, and eradicated aquatic life from local streams and lakes. The air surrounding the cobalt mines is also full of toxic dust, and a 2020 study in The Lancet found risk of birth defects such as limb abnormalities and spina bifida is far higher for the children of cobalt mine workers. Furthermore, more than 200,000 cobalt workers in DRC work in unregulated, poorly ventilated mines and are forced to use pickaxes, shovels, and even their own hands to dig for the cobalt. That might sound easy for Bugs Bunny, but not so much here. DRC's cobalt boom has also been subject to modern-day slavery, human trafficking, and child labor, with the U.S. Labor Department estimating that between 5,000 and 35,000 children, some as young as six, work in these unregulated operations. Lithium as the lightest metal in the world and a very reactive metal, lithium is the most famous EV battery component, and works great when you promise a group of third graders that you'll pay for their college tuition when you don't have the money that need to confront them 10 years later and want to give them a gift to lessen the blow. If you were wondering, not only do I not skip the Scott's Tots episode of The Office, but I voluntarily watch it sometimes. And if you don't too, I'm sorry, but you're a fake fan. South America's Lithium Triangle, which covers parts of Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile, holds more than half the world's supply beneath its salt flats, but it's also one of the driest places on Earth. Lithium mining is done by drilling a hole, pumping a mineral-rich brine to the surface, and then allowing the water to evaporate to leave the lithium carbonate behind, and that process requires about 500,000 gallons of water per metric ton of lithium. In Chile's Salar de Atacama, 
mining activities consume 65% of the region's water, leaving surrounding farmers, indigenous communities, and 53 animal species including 17 endangered ones with completely dried up rivers. Another massive potential source of lithium reserves is in Afghanistan, and China has already expressed interest in working with the Taliban to begin tapping those reserves. So yeah, batteries are far from perfect. It's like the casting of House of Gucci. And if we look at this in its totality, first off, most of these mining impacts take place in the global south, while the three largest global EV markets by far are China, Europe, and the United States. But speaking of China, after these metals are mined, almost all of them are processed in China. China manufactures three quarters of the world's lithium-ion batteries. And while it is often unclear which metals or batteries come from where, many reports find a significant portion of EV batteries in the global supply chain trace back to the region of Xinjiang, where China faces allegations of crimes against humanity and even genocide against Uyghur Muslims who have been coerced through a labor transfer program. Again, I will reiterate, that these environmental and human rights issues can be improved. They don't disqualify EVs, but they need to be improved if EVs want to live up to their brand as a clean transportation solution. Once the battery is actually in the car, there's another issue, and I'll let Dr. Avestruz explain. Yeah, so if you look at uh, electric vehicle batteries, they get removed from electric vehicles, when there's about 80% of life left in them. And several reasons for doing that. One is carrying 20%, more than 20% dead weight on a vehicle um, makes it that you lose a lot of range. So people don't like to lose the range. And the 20% dead weight um, also is not something which people want to do. Batteries still have 80% of their life left when they get removed. For a vehicle famous for its efficiency and everything else, that's a pretty major efficiency issue. That's like inviting Adele to sing at your party, but cutting her off after hello. As we'll discuss in the next segment, just because these batteries are removed from the vehicle doesn't mean they can't be used elsewhere, but again, that's something that has to be addressed. These batteries are made with non-renewable materials, and especially with all the issues that exist right now, but even if they didn't exist, we would not want our battery metal mining strategy to be the equivalent of sucking the cream filling out of an entire box of Oreos and throwing away the cookies. Another EV concern has to do with the electric grid. Many experts believe that a complete transition to electric vehicles in the U.S. will require as much as 1.25 million gigawatt hours of electricity each year. For comparison, the entire U.S. generated about 4.3 million gigawatt-hours of electricity in 2021. By the way, a gigawatt is a billion watts, so we're talking about millions of billions of watts here. And if anyone else here is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you know how exciting millions of billions of watts sounds. They just keep materializing out of a frozen lake in Wisconsin, ready to be way better than Miles Garrett and not get credit for it. But to have the entire country consume 30% more electricity than we do today is a bit daunting. I get that. But there's also, in all likelihood, a good 20 years before every vehicle on the road would be electric. And is it possible to add enough electric capacity in the next 20 years to handle that? Yes, it is. But what if we're transitioning away from fossil fuels? Will we have enough electricity capacity then? Tougher, but yes, no question. The previous measurements were in gigawatt hours, which refer to total energy consumption. But to talk about capacity, we just use gigawatts. Took me an hour to understand that, and we're already nine pages into this script, so I hope you can just take my word for that one. The entire electric grid in the U.S. has installed capacity of about 1,250 gigawatts of power. 
Today, about 60% of U.S. electricity generation is from fossil fuels. That's not the same as capacity, but for sake of argument, let's say we're talking about 750 gigawatts to transition away from. Now, the International Energy Agency projects the U.S. to add 217.8 gigawatts of power just from renewables from 2021 to 2026. If we kept that pace, we'd be talking 871.2 new gigawatts of renewable energy over 20 years, which already beats the 750 we currently get from fossil fuels. But there's no reason to think renewables will just keep pace. It's like saying the bacteria on the blackberries you forgot were in the back of your fridge will just keep pace. I'm sorry, but it's not going to be one new colony per week. You're going to have a civilization of bacteria in the back of your fridge next year if you don't throw that thing in the trash. And renewables are growing exponentially too. So if we don't stand in the way with excessive permitting requirements, if we make sure that energy actually gets hooked up to the grid, we could absolutely, over the next 20 years, create all the power capacity we need and then some. Even if we're good with overall capacity, though, there are specific situations that present concerns, and let's start with time of day. On the demand side, when people get home from work, they flick on the lights, fire up the oven or stove to make dinner, turn on their vintage Pac-Man arcade machine, charge their holographic self-help guru, and with everybody doing that, our electricity use peaks from about 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. And on the supply side, if we're dealing with more solar energy in particular, that presents a concern. One of the key issues is that they're intermittent. So a cloud goes by, um, they don't, for example, you know, there's no sun at night when you need electricity. And so, you know, how much electricity you get out of solar energy or wind energy actually is you know, relatively unpredictable in terms of, you know, how much you get out of them. It's true. Solar doesn't run around the clock. It's quiet quitting, according to a Business Insider op-ed. Is this a solvable problem? Yes, there's a million solutions, from more energy storage to other energy sources, to smart grids, to charging more or less, depending on what time of day people use electricity. But here's where electric vehicles come in. When people get home, they're going to want to plug in. And without proper planning, that would be adding all that additional electricity demand during peak hours. So even if the grid can handle the extra demand of EVs overall, we'd rather not have it be during that particular four-hour window. It's like when your roommate asks you to do the dishes mid-emotional breakdown. Like, pick any other time. Not the four hours a day I'm crying. That was obviously a joke. I don't have a roommate. And with that in mind, let's add in climate change. To use California as an example, days after the announcement of last summer's ban we discussed in the intro, the American Southwest was thrust into one of the longest and hottest heat waves ever recorded. During those extreme conditions, people consume significantly more electricity for air conditioning, nearly forcing rolling blackouts. We actually received emergency texts from the state telling us to conserve electricity where possible, which is how we avoided blackouts. But that's with only half a million EVs on the road. If all 30 million vehicles in California were electric, yeah, we might have been in a little more trouble. And when we compare that to some of the recent grid collapses in Texas due to cold waves, or Puerto Rico's grid, which is still a mess nearly six years later after Hurricane Maria, again, this is a solvable issue, but it is something to take seriously. Without solid investment into electric grid resilience, climate change could threaten one of its most popular solutions. I mean, talk about self-sabotage. It's like trying to cure insomnia by inventing an alarm clock that screams at you every five minutes. Besides the environmental hurdles of metal mining and grid capacity, there's also a few other challenges. Looking to the financial side, 
While electric vehicles are cheaper to operate, they're not cheaper to buy. In 2022, the average price for a new electric vehicle was estimated to be over $66,000, according to Kelly Blue Book. That's less in line with mainstream gasoline-powered vehicles and more in line with a single-ply roll of toilet paper from 2020. That higher cost is largely due to the cost of the battery, and it compounds, too. Insurance tends to cost about 23% more for EVs due to that higher cost. Many people choose to install an at-home charger, which has a cost. And battery replacements can run up thousands of dollars. Even though EVs make all that up in savings on gas and maintenance, people might find these bigger upfront purchases really challenging. I mean, how are you going to save up all that extra money to go electric when you can instead use that money to buy a retired circus elephant? No rational person could turn that down. Beyond price, we've seen many electric vehicle models have several month-long waiting lists, sometimes even over a year, which means if someone needs a car quickly, EVs might not be an option. And they can also be challenging on the manufacturing side. Some of the challenges for the manufacturers I see is that, you know, a lot of the expertise the vehicle manufacturers have are in mechanical engineering um, because of internal combustion engines. What's happening now is they need more expertise, more training. Uh, not just for engineers, but for people that work in manufacturing in terms of how to deal with, you know, new power electronics uh, to drive the motors for the electric vehicles. Um, also having to deal with batteries and high voltages and things like that. So there is a tremendous need for retraining, uh, having new skills, um, and it really is changing the landscape of what manufacturing would look like for vehicles in Michigan. And then on the social side, there's also the issue of range anxiety. Range anxiety isn't when you're walking through a driving range terrified of getting whacked in the head by a rogue golf ball, or that moment in the grocery store when the free-range eggs are $3 more expensive, so you hope no one notices when you went for the cheaper one, or when you're mid-math test and ace the mean, median, and mode but forgot the fourth one. Range anxiety is the concern many people have about the distance an EV can travel on a single charge and the fear of getting stranded during the journey. I did tease this a little bit in the intro, and I do think it's funny when people living in urban areas talk about this as if they're guaranteed to end up on a spontaneous road trip in the middle of nowhere. If you didn't know, Dumb and Dumber was a fiction movie. But nonetheless, it is a valid concern. Range anxiety has recently replaced upfront cost as the second most important reason not to buy an EV, according to a report from Ernst & Young. Now, the batteries themselves are capable of traveling really significant distances. That can always be improved, but it's more than sufficient for any driver's typical needs. What is an issue is 1. Charging availability. According to a PwC analysis, the EV charging market in the U.S. will need to grow nearly tenfold by 2030 to satisfy the charging needs of the new EVs coming onto the market. And two, the amount of time it takes to charge a vehicle. Part of the issue is it also takes a fair amount of time to charge a vehicle. You know, we're used to going to a gas station and literally eight minutes or something, we can get a full tank. That is possible with ultra-fast charging, which is some, what some people are, are, are looking at, but it requires pushing a huge amount of energy into these batteries in a short period of time, which actually causes them to degrade faster and actually, uh, so they suffer that. The other thing about this ultra-fast charging is that now you need, you need a lot of tremendous grid supply. So it you know, requires a lot of grid upgrades every time you have you know, you're going to have this ultra-fast charger. So one solution is to have a lot of these chargers around, just like a gas station, make them ubiquitous, and you could charge everywhere. 
even a lot of chargers may not be enough. These fast chargers, you know, could take half an hour to get a full charge. So you might only get partial charges along the way if you're going on a long trip. So sort of trying to get to the same model of use that we're used to for gas engines, you know, it, it's, it requires a, a pretty big technology step and infrastructure investment to actually get there. Exactly. You can create really fast charging systems, and certainly it makes some sense to have them available for people in a pinch. But it's not a good idea to become reliant on them. It's like energy drinks or adult friendships. What do you mean you have a job? Degrading batteries more quickly and demanding a massive suck on the electric grid exacerbates some of the other issues we've discussed, and again, this ultra-fast charging is doable, but it's important to be mindful of the drawbacks to that approach. The last EV issue I'll briefly discuss, and maybe this is a little unfair, but even if everything was perfect, and we overcome all these hurdles, EVs are still not a silver bullet transportation solution. I say that's unfair because nothing is a silver bullet solution. Except, of course, the Snuggie. Do you wish you could curl up on the couch but not have the blanket continually falling off of you? Hi, I'm Billy Mays, here at the Sweaty Penguin. Wait, Snuggie's check bounced? Okay, I'm changing into normal clothes. Let me tell you what I mean, though. Climate change, pollution, cost, these are some of the key transportation issues we face, but not all of them. Living in LA, I find myself complaining a lot more often about traffic, about parking, about a general lack of options with few bike lanes and spotty public transit. EVs don't fix that. So even if EVs fix everything else... A clean transportation transition that only results in everyone switching their gasoline-powered vehicle for an electric vehicle leaves a lot to be desired. We have a whole traffic episode, episode one in fact, which talks about all of those issues. We can talk about how some people don't want a car or can't afford a car or are still waiting for their name to be called at the DMV to take their written test and it's been 20 years and they're too far in to leave now. But addressing these issues can be part of a clean transportation transition if we want it to be. EVs can take center stage if we want, but if that's all we do, we'll still have a lot of meat left on the bone. Does that mean EVs are doomed to fail? Of course not. Well, maybe the ones with the word leaf in the name. Like, let's be real here. I run a climate podcast, and even I want my car name to be the X-29 Silver Lightning John Cena 43,000 Muscle Tiger. I love nature, but I'm sorry, you can't be driving around a leaf. But everything else can absolutely be improved. In our next segment, we'll discuss some of the possibilities to overcome these issues, hear a lot more from Dr. Avestruz about the many innovations he's spearheaded to fix these issues, and how to pull all that off without the cars starting a Pixar-style uprising. Have you ever watched Jurassic Park and wanted to be Jeff Goldblum? Well, you may not have Jeff's magnetic charm, but you can enjoy dinosaurs today with alligators. They evolved far enough to walk out of the water and then quit while they were ahead. Supplies are limited. Get them before they're gone in the next Anthropocene extinction. Alligators, the only prehistoric relic that tastes like chicken. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. So where do we go from here? How do we make electric vehicles as perfect as Jordan Love's message to Bears fans on Father's Day? First off, this is a case where individuals can play a role, and no, not in the everyone-go-buy-a-90,000-dollar-Tesla-right-now way. If you are in the market for a new car and an EV fits your lifestyle and budget, there are cheaper ones than Teslas, then by all means, 
as Jason Mraz once said, you do you. But if you already have a gasoline-powered car, in all likelihood, it would be lower emissions to drive that car until the end of its life than to junk it and buy an electric one. As we said, there are emissions all along the supply chain, and by not wasting resources, we end up better off. There's other money-saving transportation solutions too, though, from buying a used car, to using public transit, to biking, to walking, to hitching a ride with your friend and then controlling the music and calling yourself a passenger princess. Speaking of, if I start calling myself a passenger prince, will I get free rides in Starbucks too? It's just to help the environment, I swear. Even working remotely is technically a solution here. And as someone who works remotely, I complain about it a lot, so I'm not saying it's for everybody, but it does save on transportation emissions, so that's one thing you can put in the pro column. And if you noticed, with the exception of buying a new EV, all of these options save you money, and even the EV will in the long run. These really aren't sacrifices, unless the thing you're sacrificing is the ability to post memes about how broke you are. How about the EVs themselves? Starting with the batteries, there are several ideas out there to make the metals more sustainable. Obviously, a lot has to do with where each metal is mined, there's the processing in Xinjiang, so nobody has full control over this. But seeing as auto companies seem interested in sustainability, and nobody wants an investigative report dropping saying there's child labor or human trafficking in their supply chain, there is a huge economic opportunity for any country that gets their act together or gets in the game in a sustainable way. With lithium, there are several ideas in testing to conserve water in the South American desert, from recycling lithium brine to creating chemical reactions and absorption columns that make lithium mining more efficient. Elsewhere, there are companies like Snow Lake Lithium, developing the world's first all-electric lithium mine in Nevada, which could be a way to lower carbon emissions and have better control over human rights standards. Although I must say, I did not expect to ever hear the word snow or lake in reference to Nevada. I guess the whole state is in a desert, but still. For cobalt, some ideas include creating official mining areas that allow for bigger equipment to make mining safer, using bigger machines to remove the top layer of soil to reduce the need for hand digging, and creating more transparent supply chains. It remains to be seen how big an effect this can have, but the Responsible Business Alliance, for example, has brought over half the world's cobalt refiners into their program, and a school in the Democratic Republic of Congo, mentioned by Amnesty International's Cobalt Report, has received enough donations to open five new schools and teach thousands of children rescued from the mines. With manganese, this would still need to be tested and scaled, but one interesting idea I saw was using hydrogen in the production process, which would lead to fewer carbon emissions and an overall reduction in energy consumption. That's just one option. With bauxite, according to Aluminum International's 2022 report, miners can use strategies such as identifying culturally and environmentally significant areas to design mindful infrastructure, controlling dust levels through watering, road maintenance and vehicle regulations, building settling ponds and other drainage structures, implementing early and ongoing rehabilitation planning, including landform design and revegetation, improving biodiversity management via innovative and sustainable practices, introducing noise abatement measures like buffer zones, equipment modifications, and adjusted operation timings, and establishing procedures to minimize fuel and other spillages. With nickel, it can be difficult because of how low the concentrations are in the ore, but dry stacking ocean tailings or switching to renewable energy could be a start, and actually, Elon Musk offered a, quote, giant contract for a long period of time to whoever can find a way to mine nickel efficiently and sustainably. To which I say, Elon, I have an idea. All I need is a cup, a sledgehammer, and every single slot machine in Las Vegas. Crap, I've said too much. If none of that looks promising, 
Another option is using other metals to make batteries. Here's Dr. Avestruz talking about sodium as a potential battery metal. There's a lot of ongoing research, uh, including at the University of Michigan, to not use lithium, perhaps to use sodium. Uh, that's a very interesting avenue of research because sodium is much more plentiful and easier to get than lithium. So that is really something which is really in the research stage right now. I'm not really sure when that actually you know, becomes a, a real product that goes into cars, but that's certainly something which is very hopeful. That's right. If you ask an engineer if there's any periodic table element that could replace lithium in batteries one day, they'll tell you, nah, man. You'll get that one on the ride home. But it's true. Sodium is much more accessible. Just open a bag of rolled gold pretzels. If sodium batteries become viable, or if any of the other technologies in development become viable, such as solid-state batteries, iron-air batteries, or lithium-iron-phosphate batteries that hope to outlast traditional lithium-ion batteries, that could be a big step toward reducing the need for some of these materials. Another possible way to conserve these rare metals is by making batteries smaller. You can reduce the size of the batteries. So in vehicles, you, you know, potentially you can reduce the size of the batteries by half. So that does a lot of things. Now the vehicle's lighter, the batteries are smaller and hence safer. So safety is actually another thing, which is an issue with batteries in vehicles, which I, I didn't mention. And so these smaller batteries need less raw materials. They're lighter, meaning that overall it's more efficient, uh, uses less raw materials. Um, so... Technologies like that, reducing the battery size in vehicles, um, new battery materials, um, are really kind of, I think, the future. It's true. Batteries are really heavy. Even heavier after a few beers. As Dr. Avestruz explains, reducing the size of batteries not only helps reduce the need for metals, but it makes the vehicles safer and makes them more efficient because they have to carry around a lighter load. That ultimately addresses every issue at once, which is pretty cool. I mean, if my therapist could address every issue at once, we'd actually finish within the 48 minutes and 31 seconds that's allotted to us. Another possibility is battery recycling, and there's a few ways to do that. Pyrometallurgy involves the burning of batteries to eliminate unwanted organic materials and plastics, leaving behind useful components like copper and certain metals. However, this process often loses a considerable amount of aluminum and lithium. It's also how I lost my sunglasses. Hydrometallurgy, on the other hand, uses leaching, uses strong acids to dissolve metals in the battery into a solution, allowing for the recovery of more materials, including lithium, but that can be costly and complex. One company called Redwood Materials uses a combination of the two techniques, converting metals using residual energy in the batteries and recovering a significant portion of a battery's metals. Another company called Lycycle focuses solely on leaching, and apparently can recover over 95% of all raw materials found in lithium-ion batteries with that method. A third option could be direct recovery, which would salvage materials without destroying its crystalline nanostructure. The Department of Energy's Resell Center is working on that. There are even companies like Acceleron working on battery designs to make them more recyclable, creating a non-welded battery container that allows for easy cell replacement and recycling. All of these ideas have economic hurdles, technological hurdles, and hurdles in trying to get my head around it without getting a migraine. But it seems like smart people are working on this, and in short, recycling batteries could end up being a way to avoid the need for more metal mining. That said, there may be an even simpler option than recycling batteries. Here's Dr. Avestruz talking about how retired EV batteries could potentially be reused as energy storage on the electric grid. You know, EVs are growing exponentially. So what you'll find is you'll have seven and a half million batteries per year coming off of vehicles 
um, in 2030. But if you look at what you would need for energy storage um, for the grid, for example, so that you can supply you know, energy for EV charging and other things like that, uh, the energy storage demand in 2030 is going to be something like 300 gigawatt hours per year. And that translates to powering Detroit for two straight weeks, the entirety of Detroit. Um, at the same time, if you were to produce energy storage to basically supply that, making new batteries specifically for energy storage is going to produce about 15 megatons of carbon dioxide going to the atmosphere um, every year in 2030. And that's equivalent to about two and a half gas cars uh, polluting the air. So the idea is if you use retired EV batteries, you essentially remove this waste stream of producing all the CO2 from making new batteries for energy storage. That's right. We could, if all goes well, remove the battery from the electric vehicle and continue to use it on the electric grid. Again, that saves on metals because you don't need to create as many new batteries for the grid specifically. It helps address some of the issues with electricity supply and demand. And it saves us from having to throw our batteries in the trash can. Let's face it, that kitchen trash is already overflowing, and it's about as well-balanced as a Jenga stack 30 minutes in. Don't tell me you want to throw a car battery in there. That said, there are some drawbacks. Part of the issue there is that there isn't enough batteries to recycle right now. And there won't be for a while, just because, uh, you know, the batteries in EV last 15 to 20 years. So all the batteries that are going to EVs now won't be, won't be available for recycling for another 15 or 20 years. So in the short term, there isn't a lot to recycle. A lot of these batteries aren't going to be available for a while, and the grid needs energy storage capacity now. That's why we ordered storage capacity from Domino's. We need it in 30 minutes or less. Although I don't think a single Domino's order in my life has ever arrived in 30 minutes or less, I must say. The other issue, though, according to Dr. Avestruz, is that every battery degrades differently. But the real problem with batteries off of electric vehicles is that even though, for example, they start out with all the entire, you know, the same make, model, year, identical when they go into a vehicle. By the time they come out of the vehicle, they're all very different. They have different capacities. They've degraded quite differently. And the reason why is each of the vehicles have are going to have very different drive cycles, for example, and they're going to have different temperature cycles because all the users, all the drivers are, are going to use their vehicles differently. And this presents a real problem in terms of using them for energy storage. When you put, the, put together an energy storage system, a battery energy storage system, you really want them to have pretty much the same characteristics. If you put them in with different characteristics, what winds up happening is that basically the performance of your energy storage system is going to be limited by your weakest batteries. So what we came up with is a way to include electronics, power electronics, into these energy storage systems in a really effective and efficient way where you don't have to use electronics for every single battery. What you can do is you can process only a portion of the power and actually wind up extracting almost all the energy or all the power capability out of these used batteries, even though they could be vastly different. And we can do that in a pretty cost-effective way much more cost-effective than really what's done today, where they use power electronics for every single battery. And I'm certainly not enough of an expert to elaborate on that, but I should say Dr. Avestruz earned a National Science Foundation Career Award for that research, so that is very cool. Hopefully this technology can scale and be effective in helping us reuse batteries. Speaking of the grid... While these new batteries would be a huge help, 
they wouldn't solve everything. They're not a Taylor Swift album. But there's a lot of options that can be explored to help prepare for an influx of EVs. We can make the grid more resilient by equipping it to handle extreme weather, fixing faults, and increasing transmission capacity. We can continue to add new clean energy to the fullest extent that that's viable. And we can turn to smart grids, which no, are not grids that took a gap year to find themselves before committing to transmitting electricity. As we discussed in our Smart Grids episode, these are electric grids that collect information from the consumer and make better decisions accordingly. If smart grid technologies were in place, there's a variety of incentives or restrictions that could be implemented to ensure EVs don't cause another big spike during peak hours. You can also put sort of pricing controls or even sort of like, you know, like you said, smart grid things where basically you don't let people charge their vehicles between, let's say, 5 and 8 p.m when everyone's using their electricity in the house and maybe you have people maybe start charging at 10 at night and go till the next morning so you can sort of incentivize people with sort of pricing controls and things like that and there's a few options there you can make electricity more expensive during peak hours and less expensive during other times of day that would mean ev owners who are mindful about when they charge get a nice discount alternatively you could just not let people charge during a certain part of the day, or make it somehow really inconvenient for them to do that. I propose mandatory interpretive dance sequences that must be performed perfectly in front of a sensor to initiate charging in peak hours. You want power? Dance for it! That's all you got? Faster! We can also make it less of a necessity to have to charge at home. We can have more publicly available charging stations, which would be important anyway. Workplaces could set up charging in their parking lots so people can charge at work. Recently, Ford and GM announced they would adopt Tesla's connector, aiming to make it the industry standard, which is a big step toward making charging convenient for all EV owners. It would also mean Ford, GM, and Tesla would have fewer types of chargers combined than one iPhone owner. How about that? And as I'm sure you could guess by now, Dr. Avestruz also has a really cool idea in the works. I'll let him share it with you. One of the things which is interesting we're working on is actually being able to do battery charging while moving. And, you know, this is a very new thing we're trying to do. And the idea there is to, and we have a patent for this, is to basically have light-duty vehicles which carry charge and can charge while moving from vehicle to vehicle. So you can think of these things as, you know, moving chargers that charge over, you know, let's say some corridors on the highway. And while moving, seamlessly you just get charged and then, you know, you don't even notice. A road that charges your car. Come on. I mean, the only cooler inventions than that would be a bed that auto-makes itself when you get up, a karaoke machine that adjusts the song's key to match your vocal range, and a pair of socks that boomerang back to their pair when lost. In all seriousness, if wireless charging, or wireless power transfer as it's technically called, could work for EVs, that could be a significant step toward reducing range anxiety and making it as convenient as ever. To charge your car. That said, the investment that would go into setting something like that up on every road and paying for the power would present some political and financial challenges, so I'm sure we can discuss that if and when the time comes. And speaking of policy, as I said before, there's already a lot on the books supporting EVs. There's also so much improvement within the auto industry itself that EVs are not far from just being better than gasoline-powered vehicles. Once charging is more available, sticker prices come down, and Matthew McConaughey does some electric Lincoln commercials, that may be all it takes for most people. But policy can still move the needle. One thing policymakers may play a role in is ensuring these issues of sticker prices and charging availability get addressed equitably. As a policymaker, you can't 
ignore the needs of those people. I think that's, you know, being able, being able to not ignore those people and, and just go sort of beyond the needs of the urban community, actually, I think will help overall kind of change the politics of electrification. Also making it accessible as well to uh, all income levels. Electric vehicles are expensive. People in underserved communities generally are underserved uh, in terms of everything. So in terms of how good their grid is, certainly, you know, possibly also how much charging stations they're going to have. I think these communities, these populations, you can't ignore them. They're all part of our sort of voting public. Everyone has to have a stake in it. And I think that's going to help a lot down the road. Doing this research and seeing how historically it was often low-income and minority communities that had highways run through their towns, and now they've faced the burden of air pollution and noise pollution, it's only natural to put an emphasis on their inclusion in a clean transportation transition. There's already some action on that. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act in 2021, for example, includes $2.5 billion to expand access to public EV chargers in underserved urban and rural communities. Listening to those communities and learning how they want to be involved in this process could absolutely be a major help. And the last thing I'll say, which I've done a lot of writing and commentating on, is that policymakers ought to understand the extent to which EVs can solve all our problems. Again, they don't solve traffic, they don't solve parking, they don't solve my fear of asking people for a quick favor. We've covered some other aspects of clean transportation in other episodes, such as traffic and airplanes, and we'll continue to. But again, I feel that centering too much policy on EVs and not enough on other transportation alternatives amounts to a far less effective clean transportation transition. I know that was a lot more than we normally cover in one episode, and I hope that was fun. I was receiving so much interest in this topic, so I wanted to give you as much detail as I could. But just because there was a lot to cover doesn't mean you should be overwhelmed. If anything, quite the opposite. There are a lot of problems, but all of them have exciting potential solutions. And if we can talk about these real issues with EVs and address them head on, we can mitigate a massive contributor to climate change, make driving cheaper for vehicle owners, reduce air and noise pollution, and maybe make a transportation system so efficient that dominoes can actually live up to their 30 minutes or less promise. That wraps up episode 121 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from NBC News. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.